everybody, Bill Williamson here. Welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined. Today we are talking about a short story by Tom Godwin, originally published in August of 1954, called The Cold Equations. It's a good one. We hope you stick around to listen. And my co-host today, as always, is Dan Cam. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well out there. And yeah, as Bill said, we're talking about the cold equations, which, although it's not a very long story, it has a certain point, and I would say that it pounds its message in in every single page of the story. It is indeed relentless in a word. It's one that I had never read before, and I really like it, though. It's a, I think it's a fantastic story. There's a lot of stuff going on in it, and, and we've certainly got some stuff that we can chat about. Before we get too deep in... Let's introduce the characters really quickly. There are really only four to speak of. The dropship pilot, whose name is Barton. His commanding officer, who is Commander Delhart. The stowaway, who we learn is Marilyn Cross. And then her brother, who we meet for a little while right at the end, Jerry Cross. Unlike a lot of the other stories we cover, where there's this big, super interesting twist at the end, there's no twist in this story. You might even be hoping there's going to be a twist in the story, but you'll be disappointed. Well, I think you just hit it. You want there to be a twist at the end, and it doesn't happen. Well, you're, you're used to there being a twist at the end in these types of stories, just from everything else we see and watch out there. But as I said, The no. title you realize by the end really does say it all. The cold equations isn't metaphorical, not really. It is an absolute promise that the ending is bleak. Exactly. And sort of to frame up the story, essentially what we have is the opening scene is there's a pilot. He's sitting in his chair doing pilot type things. And uh, even the first few words of the story is he was not alone, which almost sounds like a horror flick. But in this context, this is going to become very relevant very quick. Uh, So the pilot's sitting in his chair and he's basically flying a rescue mission to uh, this planet. He's carrying some type of drug or serum to save some people who are sick. And he's basically the only guy who can do it. He got sent from his mothership with just enough fuel, you know, just enough air to get there and, and get everybody saved. And so he's on his way over there. And all of a sudden he realizes that he is not the only person on the ship. Right, there's a little indicator dial. It's supposed to read zero, and it instead doesn't. And again, the line, simple, direct, straightforward. It could be but one kind of body, a living human body. A stowaway. (laughs) Right, and that's it, is that he's got a stowaway on the ship. And so the early part of the story is a buildup to him thinking, he he does a little bit of, of rehearsal in his head, and he stowaways, regardless of who they are or why they are there, must die. Because there's only enough fuel. Kick him out the airlock. ASAP. Right. And apparently this must happen a lot because there's a right. law. I mean, we've written on the books. <laughs> you know, don't know why so many people want to stow away, but hey, you know, it, it is what it is. It's the future. And that, yeah, to have an established protocol for something like that. Maybe there's a bunch of space hobos out there or something trying to get from place to place. And it introduces right away the title of the story, The Cold Equations. The idea behind it being that in a ruthless commitment to efficiency and financial efficiency as well as then everything that goes along with that, as you mentioned, they only put on enough fuel for these little missions to get to where they're going with the exact weight of the ship plus whatever cargo and personnel are on board and just a little smidge of extra in case something goes wrong, but not much. And again, 
oxygen, all all monetarily valuable resources. Yes, all finely tuned. And it is it is the height of capitalism, the height of efficiency, the height of, as it says, because it's done by artificial intelligence. All these countless calculations, the cold equations, the cold equations, because it is efficient. And and also the fact is this is the this is the frontier as they they make great pains to say like this is the edge of civilization, and. Basically, if you screw up, you're going to die. And, of course, if you're at the frontier, the likelihood is you're pretty much living a subsistence you know, living to start with. You don't have a whole lot of extra, and everything you've got is extremely important. Right, and so the ruthless commitment to efficiency is really about survival. And so you can build it up as a negative, but the reality is it's just they're trying to be smart, and they're trying to take human emotion out of decisions that otherwise might cause you to hesitate or to make the bad decision, the wrong decision that would lead to instead of one person dying, seven or 10 or 20 or everybody dying, whatever the case may be. So it's about removing human emotion from decisions and following this ruthless logic. And even though there is this ruthless logic and there is a a little body in the compartment, he pretty much has some idea of who or what it's gonna be. The next few t- paragraphs, he almost goes through his routine of, you know, I'm going to open the door and this guy is going to be sitting there and I'm just going to apparently yank him out, throw him in the airlock and send him off to his doom. And just in case he's not sure about it or if he resists, he's got his hand on his blaster. Of course. So, you know, he grumbles because I'm sure this is not something he particularly wants to do. I don't know if he's done it before, but it doesn't sound like it's really you know new to him. Uh, So he basically kind of steals himself up, works himself through the mental gymnastics, walks over to the the locker or the cabinet or wherever the stowaway is. He opens the door, and what does he find, Bill? A teenage girl. Dun-dun-dun. 18-year-old girl. The last kind of person he would expect to see. Right, and so we learn pretty quickly that she has stowed away on the ship and the spur of the moment kind of thing, she was she was on the starship, which is called the Stardust. She's walking by. She knows that this mission is going down to the planet where her older brother happens to be working. He's on one of two work crews that is planet side. And she's thinking, I could wait a year and see him, or I could stow away on this ship, and I get to see him tomorrow, and it'll all be okay. And so she says oh, she prepares herself to pay any fine or something like that. She has no idea what she's getting herself into. She has no idea the consequences that she's going to face. Even though she walks through the door that says no admittance. You know, she knows she's doing something wrong, but it never really occurs to her exactly what the ultimate punishment's going to be for this particular transgression. And this is one of the points that the story makes a couple different times. It compares the relatively easy and consequence-free, at least in comparison, life of life on Earth versus life on the frontier, as you were talking about before, where because everything has to be just so for everybody to make it through the end of the day, there are greater consequences for things when people break a rule, even something that seems as harmless as this, at least to her. So he gets the backstory of the girl, and and of course he knows immediately what has to happen. You know, he's a He's an old hand at this. He knows how the math works. He knows how the frontier works. He knows immediately that there is nothing that can be done, and this girl's going to have to die pretty quickly. But he's second-guessing himself in part because 
he doesn't want to make her die. Right. And he doesn't he doesn't want anybody to have to die, but but it, like it's it's a bigger deal for him that it's a young female instead of uh a while well, any any male. Right, which is interesting because he's he's more than ready to chuck some dude out of the airlock. That's right, or shoot him down and then chuck him out. Yeah, but for, since it's an 18-year-old girl, somehow now it's become a moral dilemma, or at least it, it's giving him pause. You know, and of course, this is 1954. There's a few social mores that have changed since then, but I, you know, basically the author is trying to find the most innocent person he can think of that has absolutely no reason to be killed to be sacrificed in this story. Well, and we add to it, there's a moment where it goes through the mind of the pilot. She's kind of small, and he wants to believe that she's small enough that it won't make a difference, even though he comes real quickly to the realization that, no, that's just wishful thinking. But still, it's enough of a dilemma for him that he calls home base, or the, well, not home base, but the starship, and, and reaches out to his commander to explain that there's a, there's a complication. And the commander's like, so, you know what to do, get on with it. And then he says, right. uh, it's a girl. And then there's this pause like, hold, please. And yeah, so this becomes a dilemma for everybody because of the gender and age and innocence of, of the stowaway. And I suppose, you know, we can be, you know, we can be drawn in by, by a little bit of humanity there. And that's, that's all fine and dandy. But, but really, at the end of the day, everybody knows what the outcome has to be. Except for her. Well, except for her. That's right. Well, at least at the beginning. Yeah, and as it goes on, I mean, obviously the the commander knows, the the captain of the ship knows, and she's just like, hey, you know, give me, send me the bill. I'll I'll just you know I'll pay the fine and be on my way. And meanwhile, put me in handcuffs, officer. Exactly. And you know, obviously she sees him, his reaction. You know, she sees him going to talk to the commander, everything going on, and she starts to get the idea that uh, something bad is probably going to happen here. And then we get into a, a certain, you know, a few paragraphs where she starts realizing what the what the price is going to be. And of, then there's, of course, a whole section of her coming to grips with, with what's going to happen. You know, even the stages of, you know, denial and why and asking all the questions and so on and so forth. Isn't there anything that can be done? And they really do try to figure out if there's some way that they can they can alter the course of reality that has to come to pass. Um, but in the end, what they determine is that she has a certain amount of time because the pilot, as soon as he registered, one, that there was a stowaway, and then two, that he had a dilemma about it, he changed something. He, he, did, he, did he accelerate? He, he sped up. I think he sped up. Yeah, so he, he reduced the amount of fuel that he was using by changing a setting on the ship. So he alters... The predetermined course, and then gives the new data. Yeah, he starts eating into his reserves to see exactly how long he can keep her alive, even though knowing there's an end, he's like, "Well, I'm going to try to delay the end as long as possible," because he's trying to figure out if there's a solution. And at the end of the, uh, as the calculations become new or, or you know, remade, he determines that they have an hour of time, but that at that point. They have to go through with the protocols, the standard protocols. But at least he buys her an hour where she can have time, potentially, as it turns out, to reach out to her brother. And she chooses to write some letters to her family. And that she has a little bit of time to come to grips with everything that's going on. 
And then, as we said, there is no twist. No magical aliens show up to rescue her. There is no uh, prototype transporter to beam her away. Essentially, the story gets to the point. He walks her to the airlock, does the deed, and goes back to his job. This represents one of the moments that, as I read it, I thought, hmm, he was prepared to shoot some guy if they if there was indeed a guy in there and the person resisted and then afterward at some point he thinks that death by airlock is a bad thing <laughs> that she's basically going to you know bad things are going to happen to her body presumably it's not going to be painless but he chooses not to shoot her before he opens the airlock i, w- I thought that was a little weird afterward hmm, i never thought of that Never did think about him even having the possibility of shooting her, but that's a that's a good point. You know, it, it, at that point, it would have been a mercy killing, and, you know, it, so it would have saved her whatever physical pain would have come from being out in the airlock. And who knows how long that physical pain would last. Well, I mean, I, I think I do see why he doesn't do that, right? Because the entire point of the story is... It's the universe's fault, essentially, that she has to die. If he takes agency in the story, now it's going to become personal, and it's no longer the cold equations. It's the action of a person causing her to die. And the whole point of the story is it's this nature's this implacable force, and if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you've got to go. It, the, the moral of the story here, well, that's not really a moral, but it's, it's set up as... It, the amoral. It, it, indeed. <laughs> It, it doesn't matter whether you're the, the Dalai Lama or the son of Hitler or an 18-year-old girl or who you are. If, if you're on the wrong side of the equation, you, know, you have to die, not for any particular reason, but just simply because at that point you exist. And you can't exist if everybody else is going to survive. Right. And there's an interesting parallel that gets drawn between the ship's way of dealing with things, which, of course, is you know, based on um, cal- calculations— and the whole reason for the mission that he is on, because this planet that they are terraforming, that they're trying to decide, you know, can we live here? And if so, what does it take? So one of the crews that's planet side, while they are working, a tornado emerges off of the gulf that is just off the coast that their that their little um, that their compound is on, and the tornado comes through and wipes out everything. Well, not everything, but it, it wipes out their supply hut which includes their medical kit. And one of them contracts a local disease, some sort of a virus or a bacteria, and it spreads to the rest of the crew. And so now the pilot is bringing them this serum. But again, the parallel is the cold equations from the computer don't care who anybody is, why anybody is, or anything like that. And at the same time, forces of nature are the same way. They just do what they do. They're ruthless. The individual human or other life form that gets in its way is really not of any sort of consequence to nature. It's just a force that takes things out. Yeah, he makes a point about the about the hurricane, and and he talks quite a bit about the forces of nature and, and how implacable and ruthless they are, and the same thing applies to this hurricane. He says, you know, for all its deadliness, it had destroyed with neither malice nor intent, It had been a blind and mindless force obeying the laws of nature, and it would have followed the same course with the same theory had man never existed. Yeah. And and so, you know, we are humans resorting to 
actions that recognize the ruthlessness. I keep using that word, but it is absolutely appropriate here. Um, but we we act in such a way to safeguard ourselves in light of all of these forces that really don't care who we are or that we even exist. Yeah, it's the as he writes. The men of the frontier had long ago learned the bitter futility of cursing the forces that would destroy them, for the forces were blind and deaf. The futility of looking to the heavens for mercy for the stars of the galaxy swung in their long, long sweep of 200 billion years, as inexorably controlled as they by the laws that they neither knew hatred nor compassion. The men of the frontier knew, and then he asks, but how is a girl from Earth to fully understand that? And again, we get that juxtaposition of the comfortable life on Earth versus the cold, harsh reality of life on the on the frontier in space. And, you know, there's a lot of stories, there's a lot of movies that play with the sort of bleak, desolate, uncompromising coldness of space. And, and, and certainly, I mean, this is an early enough story that we can imagine that it has influenced the way that people look at those kinds of things. And yet at the same time, there's something about the story that just, it, you, you talked about at the top of this, the, how unrelenting the story is. And it just feels like it's a story that is in some ways unlike anything that we've seen before, or unlike, I should say, anything that we've seen since, because it just sticks to that storyline in such an unrelenting fashion. Exactly. I mean, I I fully said for sure once I had read this story that there is no way anyone's ever going to make a movie about this because <laughs> we are just so used to, you know, someone, you know, the cavalry riding over the mountain at the last second to, to save her. And he even in the story makes reference to the fact the pilot does that, you know, if this were on Earth, there'd be rescue right. ships coming to save her. Her name would be plastered all over the news, and there would be this massive effort to to make sure she, she survives. But at the frontier, where it's there's nothing and no one, this is what it is. Right. There's no rescue ship that can, that can happen. I mean, they, they, they figure out that the closest vessel to them is 40... Or is it 40 million light years away? Regardless, it's longer than can... Could possibly help. They are on their own. There's nothing that can be done. And one of the things that we haven't really stated in a, in a direct way yet, just yet in the conversation is that the choice that it comes down to is there's not enough fuel for both of them to get to the planet. So it's not just that the choice is does one of them get to die, but it's... It's really bleak and really obvious which person has to die, not just because she's the stowaway. And she probably can't pilot the ship at all. Right. That's it. She's not the pilot. There's this serum on board that's got to be delivered. And so it's not just two lives that we're talking about. Is it six or seven people that are planet side? So we're talking nine or ten people, eight, nine, ten people that are really, you know, if she doesn't die, all of them die. Yeah, it's almost like the trolley problem, but the, the trolley problem says this person has to die. Well, the trolley problem is somebody has to die. You get to choose who it is. You know, and that's the lifeboat thing, too, where it debates the value of different pieces in, 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 you know, in humankind. But this is just like, nope, there's, it's pretty clear, clear cut. There are certain people that are more valuable than others in this situation. 
So yeah, either seven people or seven people plus the pilot have to die or the girl dies. And most people are going to say it, in that situation there, there is no choice. There is no free will or, or the, you know, determinism wins every time in this particular scenario. And it's certainly not like the lifeboat situation, right? We've seen that many times where there's, you know, 10 people in the lifeboat and we have to decide right. who's got to go because there's not enough food. And, you know, do we kill the fat person? Do we kill the old person? Do we, you know, whoever it is. But the, all those stories are generally about the interplay of the people inside the boat and figuring out what that choice is going to be and how they come to it. And that's, you know, how those stories are packaged. Whereas this, you know, none of that debate occurs. It's just an equation at this point, And there's an ending. Well, and it reduces this from, I mean, it, it isn't a question of morality, you know, and, and a, a lot of those other stories are playing out what are our psychological, our emotional and our intellectual weaknesses and, and, and all of those lead down a pathway to being able to judge someone's individual morality. That is not the question here. And the story doesn't set itself up as a morality play in any way, shape or form. No, it's the anti-morality. It's saying that when the universe right. is is involved, morality is irrelevant. These are all human constructs, and the universe just doesn't care. I've been trying to think since reading it if there is any real parallel that I can think of from another story. And one of the possibilities that came to mind is actually the movie 28 Days Later, which is, of course, is one of the zombie apocalypse films. And there's a moment where a character becomes infected with the virus that, that creates these violent, you know, cannibalistic zombies, and he has to die. But that does not parallel to this. There, there no, really is I, no parallel. I mean, as, as I'm thinking about, okay, where do we see characters getting killed because of a, a sequence of events and, and where it's a, a really clear-cut decision or, or whatever? This is, this is unlike all of those other kinds of moments that we see in film and in, in short stories. Or in novels. I mean, yeah, but is it really that different, Bill? I mean, essentially, at the end of the story, the girl ends up sacrificing herself to save the pilot and the people on the planet. And she really doesn't even try to save herself. She doesn't try to grab the guy's blaster. She doesn't try to take over the ship. She doesn't try to do anything. At the end of the story, she essentially realizes that, yeah, she's got to die. And then she, I guess, just goes over to the airlock and lets the pilot do his thing. So... As a story about someone sacrificing themselves for everybody else, there's a million stories about that and a million movies about people sacrificing themselves. And, of course, in science fiction and fantasy, it usually does happen by physics. I mean, think of Spock at the end of Star Trek II, right, where he goes into the, the warp chamber right. and dies to save the ship, right? He dies due to what? Physics. <laughs> you know, so... Or think about... Uh, Gandalf at the end of, or not the end, but uh, that the first movie where he's on the bridge, they all get chased by the Balrog, and he's about to fall into the abyss, and all the other characters are, you know, basically realize they can't save him, and Gandalf realizes he can't save them, and there's certainly not an hour-long debate about the physics of going back to figure out whether they can save him or not, but essentially it's the same calculation that they all try to make. I think think the part, though, for me that, that, that resonates is a little bit different really is where you started there, when you said she meekly walks into 
the airlock. And, you know, Gandalf, no doubt about it that he's a hero. Spock, no doubt about it that he's a hero. Most of those characters who are giving themselves up, you know, go on without me. You know, there's, there's that moment where they get to be the hero. And, and you know, yeah, they're going to die at the end. And, and not everybody gets to come back like Gandalf does, or Spock for that matter. <laughs> but at the same time, it's a decision made in the moment or something that they've been building themselves up to where there, it's a direct act of sacrifice on behalf of other people. And it's a good deed. And, and although at the end of the day, yeah, she does recognize that she's doing the right thing. People are going to live because she dies. Yes. But it feels like it's less of a hero's welcome, so to speak, to Valhalla than it might be in one of those other contexts. I, and, and so I see exactly where you're coming from. And and, and yeah, you're right. I, I spoke too soon. At the same time, I'm still going to hold on to this little, this little nugget that it is still different, at least in some ways for me. Well, I think the difference is when you're looking at your typical hero, you know, where they sacrifice themselves, they're not the ones that created the problem. Yes. I mean, Gandalf didn't create their problem. Spock didn't create their problem. But in this case, she creates the problem and then she, you know, kills herself to resolve the problem. So it's, I guess it's really, I mean, thinking about it, where do you see this happen? It's usually the villain in a lot of these movies where... The villain creates the problem, at the end goes through the change of heart, and then, you know, sacrifices themselves or lets themselves get killed to resolve the storyline. Vader. Yeah, she's, so she's sort of not only the villain of the story, but also the hero sort of of the story. Yeah, I mean, she's certainly resigned to her fate at the end. And yeah, I mean, it, I think maybe I'm I'm also you know getting caught up in that sort of bleak buildup. Not to say that we don't have movies where, oh my gosh, the future <laughs> looks so gloomy and doomy and there's no way the heroes are getting out of this one. I mean, that, of course, is a huge part of cinema, especially. But it's this is like this anticlimactic gloom. Hey, can we... Do, no. Can we do this? No. Can we do this? No. Well, what about... Uh-uh. You're going to die. Yeah. It, it, well, I, it's, it's sort of... It's run-of-the-mill gloom. It's the gloom of, yeah, this is just how it is. I mean, it almost reminds me of that uh, Star Trek episode from the original series where they're having the war, and there is no real war. The people walk meekly into the disintegration chamber because they've right. been programmed by the computer to do so, and that's how they keep their society running. Right, that a certain number of people just have to die, and and, and, and there are people who su- who willingly submit themselves to it. And they sort of avoid the whole morality question by saying, oh, the, the computer's making the choice, you know, kind of... Ignoring the fact that the humans, of course, built and programmed the computer, which right. eventually is how that particular story ends. But it's certainly not a forces of nature problem like this one is. And humans, of course, program these computers as well. But if you look at the motivations, it's it's about survival, ultimately, which is the irony, of course, that if you don't do this, people won't survive. So you have to follow these equations because every once in a while, somebody just has to die to be able to let everybody else go on. So it's this extreme utilitarianism. Right. And uh, the, you kind of have to have a little bit of sympathy for the pilot. It, it's oh, yeah. not really, this is not a story, obviously, where there's a lot of character development. But you do kind of have to have a little bit of sympathy for what the pilot has to go through. And, and more specifically, how he has to live with the consequences of the decision 
even though he knows that he doesn't have a choice. And there's like one or two phrases where they sort of reference it, where he's one of them says, you know, he would only he would have only the memories to remind him only the nights of fear when a blue eyed girl in gypsy sandals would come in his dreams to die again. And it says, though, in that same area, um, something shapeless and ugly was hurrying ahead of him, going to Woden, where her brother was waiting through the night. That something shapeless and ugly, by the way, is her body. Where her brother was waiting through the night, but the empty ship still lived for a little while with the presence of the girl, who had not known about the forces that killed with neither hatred nor malice. It seemed almost that she still sat, small and bewildered and frightened, on the metal box beside him, her words echoing hauntingly clear in the void that she had left behind her. I didn't do anything to die for. I didn't do anything. And that, of course, is how the story ends. Which, of course, brings up a different question, which is, well, did she deserve to die? You know, is anybody at fault in this story? You know, of course, it's written that there is no fault. It's written that the universe is causing the problem and everyone just sort of has to go along with the universe's rules. But... You know, if you really want to dig into it, you can say, well, first of all, yeah, she she did go through the door that had no authorization. Don't go here. Of course, it didn't state on there that going through this door means death. And he does make some cases that, you know, she couldn't possibly know the consequences of her actions, which is true. But then again, who's responsible for her not knowing those consequences? Is that the educational system? Is, is that the fault of... You can imagine that... In our particular litigation society, there'd be some kind of a lawsuit against the company saying, well, that door should have been much more locked, or the ambulance chaser is right. going to say there should have been a disclaimer on the door that this this will cause death, right? Well, that's where the whole CYA mentality comes from. You know, you, if you're going to have something that has consequences of any kind, you need to cover your ass so that people cannot litigate against you when they do stupid things. I mean, it's why we have warning labels on things like hair dryers that say do not use in the shower. It's not because we think that everybody's going to do so, but it's because somebody somewhere in the past was dumb enough to do that. And it's interesting, of course, they died. Why? Because of the physical laws of the universe. Right. <laughs> That's how electrocution works. And so when you when you start looking at the, at the way that the, the story is structured, everything is set up so that, yeah, there are consequences, but it wants to absolve any of the individual actors of their responsibilities when they are enforcing these natural laws. The one whose responsibilities don't get absolved, of course, are the girls. She's the one who pays the ultimate consequence for her actions. One of the parallels that immediately came to mind for me as I was reading it was the case from I can't remember how long ago, it isn't that long ago, though, of of the teenage American tourist in North Korea who, despite being warned that you don't steal anything or you don't take anything from any public space, stole a poster or something off of the wall, was arrested for it, put into prison, was publicly caned. I mean, the whole bit. I mean, just, just brutal by American standards, well, at least by white American standards of, of his social class, brutal justice. And they couldn't understand why that set of consequences followed from the what they saw as a simple act of taking a poster. And, and that's a cultural thing right. that determines those, act, the, those actions. 
you know, the story kind of talks about how humans, you know, create these environments where we're shielded from the consequences of, you know, these natural laws, right? And we even have this today in our own society. It's not like you're going to walk, you know, through a modern downtown city and get eaten by a lion because we've created these artificial environments where those particular problems don't exist. Now, we've created other ones. You could get hit <laughs> by a car or something else. Right. But And if you took a lot of people and you dropped them into you know, the middle of the Amazon, they would probably not last very long. So you know, part of the question of what is our responsibility to, to people to keep reminding them of the physical laws on which the, the, the world is based? You know, if they can't remember them or they never experience them, should we still be somehow educating them that, hey, it's still out there? And then maybe in that case, the, the girl might have th thought twice about going through the door, knowing that, you know, there are environments and there are physical laws beyond the ones that she's familiar with. Well, and one of the other parallels that it called attention to for me as someone who has raised children is, you know, that... that we have an array of technologies or an array of, of safeguards that we put into our homes when we bring a child into the world. And one of the ones that specifically comes to mind are the little plastic covers that you shove into an outlet so that fingers don't go into an outlet when you get kids who start crawling around and, oh, hey, there's an outlet. What happens if I put my finger here? So instead of killing off all of our 18-month-old children, by letting them put their fingers in, in outlets, we have these simple technologies. Well, there's no real parallel to that here. There's no real equivalent. She's an 18-year-old, not an 18-month-old, and yet she has no concept of what the consequences of her actions are in this context. But we also know that she has only just now left Earth. She's on her voyage to a new planet where she's going to take her first job post-graduation, and the whole reason that she went through this was to be able to see her brother. You know, so there's, is there a, an education class that says, hey, by the way, these are some of the cold and ruthless laws of space. Ignore them at your peril. <laughs> right. I mean, if we're going to another country, if we're going to, um, you know, to take a job in a particular environment where there are dangers to us in one way shape or form you should be doing a little bit of basic research yeah i mean of course if we did all of that stuff would that make it better or worse that she knew the consequences and and went anyway well if she knew the consequences i'm pretty sure there wouldn't be a story <laughs> yeah because you gotta figure that if she really knew if i go into here and somebody finds me i'm gonna die chances are she's probably not gonna try to go see her brother a year early she's gonna wait you know, Dan, ordinarily, after we've been talking about one of these stories for a while, we have a segment where we start talking about the anachronistic technologies and the things that would need to... Or the writing. Yeah, or the writing. Yeah, Something, something that would need to change to, to make the story more contemporary or that, that kind of freezes it in time, so to speak. And what's interesting about this story is that the, the cold equations, the mathematical equations that drive all of the action in the story, at least that drive the... the the decision-making in the story really are the, the primary technological construct, if you want to put it that way. And, and maybe not everybody's ready to see math as a technology, but it's certainly a, an intellectual tool for exploration and understanding. Yeah, you can't really argue with it. And that's yeah. also kind of the point of the story is you can't argue with <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. 
So the the one kind of anachronistic thing that perhaps isn't even so anachronistic because I mean, we still see issues with it is really just the the turn on gender, you know, where the guy opens the door expecting to see some space castaway or whatever, uh, you know, somebody who is who is there and that he's ready to shoot or pitch out the airlock until it's a girl. And it's that gender role or that gender... That's the, that's the thing where it's only because it's a girl that he gives pause. Yeah, it's sort of like who... Who else could have been in that cabinet? You know, right. what if it was a you know a ten year old boy? What if it was a puppy? You know, <laughs> something that's that's equally cute. You know, what if what if the eighteen year old girl was <gasps> pregnant? I mean, what would that do to the story? There's there's all sorts of things you could do, but and, and obviously, I think I mentioned before, I think he deliberately chose this character because in that culture, it represents you know, eighteen year old girl represents the innocence. Well, and that's just it. You know, there's no reason she should die, which even she thinks there's no reason that she should die, and that's kind of how the story ends. Her motive is innocent. She lacks knowledge of the cold equations, so she is, yeah, she isn't a malicious character. She isn't trying to steal anything. She isn't trying to sell anything. She doesn't know that there's drugs on board that could be sold on the black market or anything like that. So it's really gender and age combined to represent sort of a bigger societal image of innocence is really what it comes down to. So would that stay today? Would that be different today? Like you said, I mean, it could just as easily be a puppy or or something like that at this point. You know, it, but it's it's really the only one sort of dated or, or, or peculiarities about the story that maybe feels like it it freezes that story in, in a time frame to some extent. Now, now, to be fair, the story is only 16 pages long. There's not right. a whole lot of opportunity to go off the rails. So, you know, you got that going for you as well. Right. So one of the things we always talk about with stories is why should people still be reading this or why should people be rediscovering this story? I mean, I, I think it's still got plenty of relevance, but... Yeah, I don't really know. I, I know I like it. I... I respect the writing, maybe because it's just so elegant and simple and clear with, with the concepts. Um, I, I recommend it, but I'm really having a hard time trying to figure out exactly why. Well, one of the things that I certainly find interesting about it is that the story at some level is the inspiration for multiple episodes of TV programs, of films. Most recently, and was the inspiration for the film Stowaway. With Stowaway, though... I would argue that although it is based on the cold equations... Loosely based It on. is loosely based on the cold equations. As in, yeah, there's a stowaway, and yeah, there's space. And yeah, not everybody can live. Other than that, not a whole lot. You know, the feel-good ending is, is, is sort of the, you know, the, the Hollywood trope. I think that there's a lot in our contemporary culture that shies away from the stark brutality of of this story that we don't want to believe that something could be reduced to that kind of cold logic. And so we always look for the hero, the human element that's going to rise above the cold equation. You know, in Star Trek, the the fabled Kobayashi Maru, the, the scenario that you can't get out of, well, how does Captain Kirk get out of it? He cheats. But it's that human ingenuity to think, hey, I'm going to go ahead and reprogram the computer so that I can win. There's no doing that here. Yeah. 
It's that human belief of what should be versus what reality actually is. Right. And what this says is that there are some things that no matter how hard you want or wish for something to be different, there are some things that you cannot change. We don't like that. We want to believe that we can innovate our ways out of any situation, no matter how stark, no matter how bleak, no matter how bad. And we have generations of television and TV er, and, and media telling us that. That's right. And to be fair, we do do it a lot. So there, there is something to be said for that. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's, that's like one of our go-to moves in, in fiction, in whether it's filmmaking or writing or whatever, is to have that ability to overcome that kind of, well, that kind of reality. And, and you, you also have that whole concept of survivorship bias. You know, nobody writes stories about the 20 ships that sailed across the right. ocean and sunk to the bottom, killing all the crew. You know, we write stories about the one, you know, plucky ship of people that survived and made it to the other side. Right. Because everybody likes a survivor and everybody loves to root for the underdog. Well, in this case... That's why so many people think they're going to win the lottery. No one hears about the 8 million people who lost. Right. We need to list those for a while. Yeah, make a movie about the 8 million lottery losers and see how many people watch it. I'm guessing probably not many. You know, when we see something like this kind of extreme, or well, I've already colored it by saying extreme. When we see that kind of commitment to a, a logic that is that... Com, you know that that strong of a commitment that's where i'm going with that we tend to see it as a character flaw or we tend to see it as something that needs to be overcome in the context of the story so like going back to star trek for example mr spock has his vulcan side which is supposed to be purely logical but then he has his human side that is his balance to that and, and that's what actually makes him an endearing character to many is that he has those human qualities and those human qualities at the right moments overcome his ruthless Vulcan logic. And we see that as the humanity overcoming the character flaw of the utilitarian logic. And when we see characters represented, it's often like an alien race or something like that, 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 that singular drive toward that kind of ruthlessness is a, is a whole, I mean, it's a, it's a character flaw that, that defines an entire, race or an entire species or an entire whatever the case may be. And again, it's something for the plucky human to overcome. So so don't be like the universe? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> it kind of feels that way. Like we, we, we still want to believe that we can write our way, film our way, act our way out of any dilemma because humanity can rise over anything, including the cold, ruthless logic of the universe. And, and so the dilemma we kind of find ourselves in now is, you know, how do we wrap this podcast up? I mean, normally we'd probably try to do some type of you know, witty play on words and try to work in to be determined. But with the cold equations, it's already been predetermined. So I guess until next time, thanks for listening to TBD. Thanks for hanging with us today, everybody. We certainly appreciate your patronage. Please join us next time when we talk about the Jack Williamson classic with folded hands. (laughs) 